We're in Yoshua, Perikei, Pasekud Gimel. We, last couple of weeks, we discussed the cessation of the man and the, a new era in Jewish history. They began eating grain, natural, ordinary food like bizu. And the last few psukim in Perikei, psukim Yud Gimel through Tesvav, the last three psukim, recount a, a very mysterious episode. Uh, a brief, well, according to most interpretations, and very obscure episode. It says, By he be Yoshua be Yericho. Yoshua was in Yericho. And that's the first problem with the text. Yoshua was not in Yericho yet. They had not conquered Yericho. Yericho was going to be the, the next chapter is about the, the invasion of Yericho, the toppling of the walls, and the invasion of the city. They were not in Yericho yet. The, 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 the first Pasuk in the next parak in Perik Vav, begins... Yericho sogeres and sugeres of Pnei Bnei Yisrael. Yericho was barred and, and shut in the face of the Jews. Ein yotiv ein ba. It was locked down. Uh, nobody was going in or out. It was a uh, fortress city. <coughs> Earlier we read about the spies going to Yericho, infiltrating Yericho, but the city itself, Yoshua was most certainly not in Yericho. But okay, we'll discuss that soon. So vayibi Yoshua be Yericho. Yoshua was in the city of Yericho. Vayisa ina vayar. He lifted up his eyes and he saw the Ish A man was standing opposite him. The Charbo Shlufa Biado. The man had a drawn a drawn sword. Charbo is uh, his sword. Shlufa was drawn from the scabbard. It was, it was it was in his hand and out of the out of the scabbard. Yoshua love. Yoshua approached him. Are you for us or are you for enemies? Are you with us or against us? Or the so we, in, in the military, we talk about friend or foe, identification, friend or foe. He asked him, are you, uh, you, are you friend or foe? Are you on our side or are you on our enemy's side? And uh, this man, this figure, responded to him and he told him, he said, lo. He said, no. You know, not, you know, which one are you, friend or foe? No. I am a captain of the host of the Lord. It was an angel, apparently. Atta Basi, now I have come. Not to, his answer was, on the simple reading, his answer was, I am neither human friend or human foe. I'm not, you know, I'm not part of your, uh, I'm not your an earthly figure at all. I'm an angel. Yeshua fell on his face in, in deference to, to the ground, in deference to this uh, heavenly, uh, heavenly visitor. When he, bowed, he prostrated himself, he bowed down to him. What do you have to say to me? Tell me your message. So this, uh, this captain of the Lord's host, he said, he said to Yoshua, Remove your shoe from your foot. The place on which you stand is holy. And Yeshua did so. Yeshua did so. Yeshua did as instructed. And that is the end of this episode. The next chapter begins, as we said, Yericho was locked up, and Hashem gave Yeshua instructions for how the invasion of Yeshua, uh, invasion of Yericho, the conquest of Yericho, was going to proceed. A lot of things to say about these psukim, a lot of, a lot of interesting ideas <coughs> from Chazal and Midrashim, Gemaris, and from the Rishonim. Just to uh, <coughs> go through various points, one after another. So first of all, the, the pasuk where, where, where the Sartzva Hashem tells Yeshua, Shal nalcha me'al raglecha, Remove your shoe from your foot. Kiyamakmashra to Amidalaf Kodeshu, holy ground. 
that Pasuk will be familiar to some of you because we have almost identical Pasuk in Pasha Shmos. When, when, when Moshe Rabbeinu is, is a shepherd, he's, take, he's tending to the sheep of Yisro in the desert, so he sees a bush, he sees a snap, the, the famous burning bush, but, and Moshe says, let me approach this and, and see what's going on. And Moshe approaches the burning bush, and again, Hashem tells him, don't, don't get any closer, remove your shoes from your feet, again, because the land is holy, the ground is holy, and uh, you can't wear shoes here. This Pasuk of Yeshua is almost the same as the Pasuk of about Moshe Rabbeinu earlier in Pasha Shmos. The one, one very uh, interesting comment by Rav Yosef Bukhar Shar. Rav Yosef Bukhar Shar was one of the great students of Pshat. He was a Frenchman, and, uh, one of the French medieval scholars of, uh, from the school of the Tosafists, from the French-German schools of, of Torah study. So he points out that in both these Pesukim, it says, in the Pesukim say, Shal nalcha me'al raglecha, remove your, shal nalcha, shal nalcha, remove your shoes from your feet. That seems a little redundant. If I tell you remove your shoes, where else are your shoes? On your head, on your head, on your ears? So he says something very interesting. He says that in the word nal in Hebrew, he says, actually can refer to either a glove or a shoe. In some languages, in German, the, 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 the term sheikh, you can have a handshikh, which means a glove. Or, so he says a, a hanshu, or a, my accent is not correct, certainly, but uh, in, some, it's in some languages, which he says includes Hebrew, a nal means the covering of an appendage, but it can be either hand or foot. We, we translate normally nal as shoe, but he says really it could include a glove or a gauntlet. So he says, shal nalchamer laglecha is take, your, take it off your feet. You can leave it, I'm not talking about ones on your hand, you have to specify feet because the term nal can refer to a glove as well as a shoe. And, he said, and, and accordingly, he says in Megillas Rus, in Megillas Rus, in the fourth chapter, so there was, uh, there was a certain transaction that was being done between, between Rus and Naomi and, and Boaz and the Goel, Ploni Almoni, involved the field, the fields of, the, of, her, of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, involved uh, marrying Rus. There was an elaborate, complex transaction that, that was going on at the end of Megillas Rus. So the Pasuk says... The Pasuk says, when it discusses the, 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 legal, the legal details of that transaction, it says, Israel. This used to be the tradition in Israel, that when, when somebody would, would, sell, would sell property, it says, A person would remove his shoe from his... From, it, says, it doesn't say raglo, it says, A person would remove his nal, he would give it to his friend, that would consummate the, the transaction. It sounds a little bit similar to the Chalitza ritual in the Torah, that when, that when, when a man dies without children, his, his, bro, his brother is supposed to either marry his wife, that's called Ibum, or is supposed to do the Chalitza ceremony involving a shoe, that, uh, that she removes his shoe. But this was different. The, this, as understood in Torah Shabal Peh, generally, the, this, this ceremony in Megillas Rus about removing a shoe is what we call Kenyan Chalipa. It's a form of Kenyan, it's a form of, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a solemnization of a transaction that you do when you, when you buy or sell or do other kinds of transactions that one, one party gives the other party an item of value and that, in the, as a symbolic exchange, the, 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 whatever, whatever is being transferred it's transferred in, in symbolic exchange of the, the item, the, 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 the property that the first one is giving the second one. We do this today. It's, actually, many of you have probably done this at some point. We do this from Achiras Chametz, for example. When, when, when you make the rabbi your agent to sell the Chametz, there, there's a pen. The, the rabbi gives you a pen. You pick it up. and uh, but that, that, we, we don't use the shoe today, but we use the, 
we use a pen or a handkerchief sometimes that one party gives it to the other party and in exchange of receiving the, the item, symbolically you transfer over, in the case of the chametz, the authority to sell your chametz. You see it at weddings sometimes when, 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 they, when, they, when they execute the ksuva or the tenayim, so the witnesses will off, so, so the witnesses will you know, well, they'll, they'll take a pen, they'll give it to the husband, and then the husband, by, the, the, the husband by taking the pen of the witnesses, obligates himself to pay the ksuva. So this is a, sta- a standard, standard aspect in, in, in Jewish legal ritual to use the symbolic transfer of an item, typically a small, commonly available item, as a means of transferring some more substantial property in exchange. So the, in, in, and the Gemara derives this from the Pasuk in Megillah's Ruos of Shalafish Nalo, so again, we usually assume that now means a shoe, but Bukhar Shur says, no, they weren't taking off their shoes. It was a glove. It was, like, it was an easy thing to do. A person would pull off a glove and say, you know, they wore gloves. We wear gloves mostly when it's very cold outside. They wore gloves. It was part of the way men dressed sometimes. They would just pull off a gauntlet, pull off a glove, and say, here, you know, here's the, say we use a handkerchief or a pen. They, they, they often just had a glove, so they would pull off the glove. He says, he, this, this is his unique idea that the term now in the Torah can mean, can sometimes mean glove. That's why here it says, here it means shoes. That's why here it says, here it says the Malraglacha here that the problem was the feet shouldn't tread on the sacred ground. Uh, in uh, I saw an interesting thing. I saw that one of the Balaitosha says that this idea that you can't wear shoes on that you can't wear shoes when when, when you when you when when you walk on holy ground. So the the, the assumption therefore was he says that the Jews we, we read Pasha's Yisra yesterday we, we read the the account of the, receive, the receiving of the Torah. So he says the Jews, they were standing on holy ground. So the Jews, presumably, did not wear their... That, that, that the Jews also, he says, would, would, would not have worn... Would, that, that the Jews would not have worn their shoes because, the, because, because that was holy ground. He says that the... He says that the... That, 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 the, that the area of... That that, that 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 the area that the area where they received the Torah was was, was holy ground, and 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 they and, and, and they would not have worn they would not have worn their shoes. I'm just looking for the exact language. He says, "Yep, that Kol Yisrael were barefoot at, at Har Sinai because under the mountain it said they it said they stood Tachas They stood under the mountain. That area was holy, and it says that that's why the the the, 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 the cattle the animals couldn't graze because it was holy ground." And therefore, he says, in in uh, in, a, in, a, in a symbolic allusion to that, he says, that's why we don't wear shoes on Yom Kippur. He says because the the way the chronology worked was that they received the Torah on Shavuos, the sixth or seventh of Sivan, and then Moshe went up to the mountain for forty days. He came back down on Shavuos or Tammuz. He saw that they had committed the sin of the Egel, and he smashed the luchos. Then he went back up to Shemayim for forty days to beg forgiveness, and Hashem agreed not to destroy the people. And then he went back up for a back up for another forty days to get the second luchos, and he came down and brought the second luchos down on on Yom Kippur. Yes, that's the rabbinic tradition. The second luchos were fought with the one hundred and twenty days after Shuas, after the first luchos, the about four months later was was the was was the was what were, were the luchosnias where the. A month, a month, a little bit less than 30 days, 29, 30 days. So between Zion, Sivan, and Yom Kippur, it was 120 days. And therefore, on Yom Kippur, 
we say that Hashem finally reconciled fully with the Jewish people and gave them the luchos, the second luchos, so that Yom Kippur has an element of receiving the Torah as well, and that's why that's that's why this one of this scholar suggests that that's why we are barefoot on Yom Kippur, because we're we're alluding to Matan Torah where we stood barefoot. There are other reasons why we don't wear shoes, but but this is this is one reason that it's a, it's it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a reference to this pasuk that on holy ground you don't wear shoes. I wanted to say, uh, years ago, I was reading an account of the Sefer, but I don't recall the results of Shalom and Shavuot, and it pertains to somebody from, I believe, North Africa, and the question was, but the people around us, the Muslims, are not wearing shoes, and uh, uh, is it permissible for us to not wear shoes, or should we wear shoes and show what we're dominant? So uh, the response was that you can continue to wear shoes, but if you're in a particular place where they are looking down upon you, they don't have any respect for God, then at that point, you may want to take your shoes off. Right. Right. Rabbi Shud now is referring to a, a very, very interesting tshuva, the, the, a, a, a fascinating and important tshuva in, in Jewish history. The, the tshuva is by Rabbi Shlomo ben Shimon Duran, the, the, the author of the, the, known as the Rashbash. He was, a, he was a rabbi in North Africa. He was the son of Rabbi Shimon ben Semach Duran, the author of the Tashbats. He was a rabbi in Muslim North Africa, and this is in the 15th century. And he was exactly as Rabbi Shudin now said. He was asked the question that the, the halacha, according to the Talmud, according to Maimonides, the halacha is you're allowed to wear shoes in shul. In the temple, they were not allowed to wear shoes. The, in, in the temple, the, the, the priests and so they, they, they were all barefoot. In the temple, you can't wear shoes. It has a special elevated uh, halacha of sanctity. But in ordinary synagogues, even though we call them mikdash ma'at, we call them a, a miniature, a, a, a miniature version of the sanctuary. They don't have they have certain halachas they have of respect, but, but uh, Simcha learned this about the various halachas of kedusha space knesses. You're not allowed to do certain things in shuls, but shoes is an explicit halacha. You're allowed to wear shoes in shul. But exactly as Rabbi Shudin now said. The, the, there was a great controversy in one of the North African shuls where the Muslims, the, the, the local Muslims, were, were sneering at the Jews because Muslims, of course, do not wear shoes in the mosque. It's considered barbaric and uncivilized and disrespectful to the... Even in private houses, they take off shoes, and, so, and certainly in mosques, they take off shoes. And they, 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 were, they, were, they were sneering at the Jews for being barbarians, for being disrespectful and wearing, and wearing shoes in their, in their shoes. So a, commu- a certain community wanted to institute a policy that shoes would be prohibited in the shul to, to avoid the chil Hashem, to avoid having the Muslims uh, mock them. Others said that it's not our, it's not our halacha, it's not our tradition, and uh, we have our own religion, our own rules, and we, uh, we, we, we don't care what the Muslims say. So, so as Rabbi Shudin now said, the Rashbash ruled that it's true that the Ikra Din, you, 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 you may wear shoes in shul. However, he, he, has, an, he has an elaborate explanation the ideas of respect and how to show how to show deference and respect is culture is cultural to a certain extent, and different cultures do this in different ways. And in the Muslim cultures, where the wearing shoes is considered disrespectful, then yes, to to avoid this this Hashem, to avoid being uh, looked down upon by the Muslims, to avoid having our religious practice being uh, mocked and denigrated by Muslims. It is indeed appropriate to uh, to make such a takana, to, to make such a rule that, 
that, that, that shoes should, should not be worn. Now, in Ashkenazic cultures, in, in European cultures, this was not the case. Barefoot was considered uh, uncouth, and if, if you appear before a king, if you appear at, uh, in, in an important place, you, you were considered less than fully dressed if you weren't wearing, wearing shoes. So Ashkenazic poskim said a person should wear shoes in shul, because it's, uh, when, when you stand in prayer before Hashem, you're supposed to, you're supposed to uh, array yourself as you would when you were appearing before a melech of a, a fleshly king, a terrestrial king, and therefore your doctor should wear shoes. But, but they acknowledge that, they, the Maramins, I think, they acknowledge that the Rashbash said it's cultural. In, 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 if you're in an Arab culture, if you're in a Muslim culture where it's not considered appropriate, then, then you should not wear shoes. Yes, please. Right, right. So, so I shouldn't have heard from a certain Rosh Hashiva. Ben Torah has to wear something on his feet beyond his shoes or sandals. You have to have stockings, something covering your feet. Right. So these things, not all of them are rigid halachas, but they're. That to a certain extent they're cultural, and, and, and if there are cultural expectations of what's considered respectful, or what's considered a dignified mode of dress, again, it, it, things, the, the, it's not universal. These are not absolutes. Different cultures have, as we see in this, in this classic example of shoes, in some cultures it was vulgar to wear, uh, it, it was vulgar to wear shoes in, inside. The Rashbash says that he says you wouldn't go into the home of the lowliest peasant wearing shoes. It would be considered an insulting and rude, and certainly not in Basel or Kenu, but in Ashkenazi cultures it was just the opposite. I remember years ago, decades ago, when I was dating, so I, I was in the yeshiva world, and wearing a hat on, 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 uh, on, on dignified occasions that require dignity, in prayer or at a wedding, or on a date, wearing a hat was considered part of being uh, formally dressed, part of being part of being well dressed. So I remember I was once uh, I was once with, uh, with 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 a woman. We were indoors in a hotel or something, and I had my hat on. And a, a little old lady came over to me, and she kind of wags her finger at me and says, "Gentlemen, don't wear hats indoors," because the the the, the, the traditional European custom, European American English custom, has always been that indoors your hat goes off. Uh, outdoors, you wear a hat. You, you look at the old pictures of the bread lines you know, in, in, in the early 20th century. There were, there were, you know, people could be down on their luck and, uh, and you know, patches in their clothing, but you wear a hat. Outdoors, a man wears a hat. Uh, indoors, indoors is considered rude. You take off your hat. I, I remember once I was talking to somebody about the hat culture. He told me that he worked, he worked for one of the big, you know, the, the old school firms, I mean, Westinghouse or something. He said, you had to wear, you, you, you had to wear a hat uh, you know, outside. You, you couldn't wear a hat at meetings. He said once he entered a meeting without a hat, they told him, go out, you know, come in with your hat, take it off, put it on the hook, and then uh, sit, sit down and, uh, and you know, participate in the meeting. So, yeah, so these things are cultural and things change. They say Kennedy uh, his hat ushered in the era of the hatless. Uh, so it had hurt to the pressure. Uh-huh. And my father, all of the men stopped wearing hats because they said the person wearing a hat. Right, so Kennedy famously didn't wear hats, and I shouldn't know what's telling us is because he had an accident in the Navy and his head, his head hurt and it, it, it wasn't comfortable for him to wear a hat. Uh, there's an interesting Chassam Sofer, by the way, we're, 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 we're meandering pretty far, there's an interesting Chassam Sofer who says that 
he's discussing the, the history of, of beards, of men wearing beards. Chamsefer makes the interesting argument, he says, it was never, it was historically, it was never really a, a particularly Jewish custom to wear a beard. He says, it used to be, all men had beards. In the time of the Bible, all men had beards. So, Jewish men had beards as well, he says. He says, today, men, Europeans, don't wear beards, and Jews don't have to wear beards either. You're not to shave with a razor, but aside from the particular prohibitions against using razors, he said, he said it's, not, it's not really a Jewish thing. He says, Jews follow the styles of the times, and he says, he claims, I, I'm not familiar with the history, I, I don't know what he's referring to, whether it's an actual historical event or some type of uh, legend, but he says that, uh, is, uh, that the, the reason men stopped wearing beards, very similar to the story Rabbi Shudna said, he said, is that there was a certain king, a Polish king, or a certain king, he said, who couldn't grow facial hair, he, he wasn't able to grow a beard. So in, in respect for the king, you know, all, the, all the men you know, didn't wear beards because it would, it would be, I guess, disrespectful to look more manly or more, uh, more, 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 more virile and macho than the king, so that, that's when men stopped wearing beards. I'm not sure what this refers to, whether it's an actual historical event. <laughs> Uh-huh. They couldn't grab their right. So, so Lewis is telling us that it was it was a, it was a military policy to to you know, just like today the military has rules on facial hair, but back then the the, the, the Roman legions had a rule against facial hair because it gave them a, a tactical uh, advantage that they couldn't they, people couldn't grab their beards and pull their heads or whatever. Okay. What happened is that uh, I was stationed in Japan for three years, and they trained me all of us to know that uh, Japan and entering an institution or if you're living in or rent, as I did, a Japanese house, you're not allowed to wear in the house. Right. And Right. Right. So, so Rashid now is telling us that cultural sensitivities. The American military was trained that when they're in on, in, in Japanese homes, uh, they, 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 they need to take off uh, their shoes, and of course, the, the Japanese take it very seriously. I remember once I was I was I was once watching. Uh, uh, a, a South Korean produced television show. I remember being very struck by this. That you know, anytime a character would enter a home, enter a room, the first thing they would do was they would immediately take off the shoes, put on the slippers. It was just like routine. It happened several times a scene. It was just like that. That was part of you enter a home. You, you wipe your feet on the doorway. You take off your shoes. We wipe our feet. But they, what they did was they would just take off. The, it was just kind of a standard in and out of the house. So, go out of the house, put on shoes. Go out of the house, in the house, take off your shoes. Take off, it was just it's, it's cultural. Okay. Yeah, sure. I was also in Japan, and I, I was aware of this. We'd go into a Jewish home. Religious <laughs> shoes came off. Right. We took a tour, and it showed us this, and showed us that. So every place you go indoors, you took off our shoes. We went in, we made a turn. The place was called Sanji Sun Kingdom. Yeah, so besides we were because not because it was because we both are but because we we taken our shoes off, which was like to us removal of the shoes was like Right. Right. We were very upset. We asked the shotgun about it. Uh huh. 
the response was, don't worry about it. They don't really think that they're gods. Right, okay, good. Yeah, so that, 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 that's, that's a very complex topic about the, 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 the status of Buddhism and Judaism. There, there, there have been great debates about what, you know, trying to understand from a halakhic perspective what they believe exactly, whether their belief is considered, what their relationship to these statues are. Yes, yeah, so that's a topic for another day. Anyway, yes, yeah, so getting back to our story. So, yes, so there, as, as we've seen, there, there, there are various cultural perspectives on shoes, but there is a very common idea. It, we have it in the Torah that we don't wear shoes in the Mikdash, we don't wear shoes in holy ground, and uh, Muslims had it, even with regular shoes, and so that's why Moshe and Yeshua took off their shoes, or were told to take off their shoes because because the, the area was holy. The, the, the area was holy because the Hashem had appeared to Moshe in the bush, and the Malach appeared to the, the Shartzva Hashem appeared to Yeshua here. So the Rishonim and the Balitosis point out a number of subtle differences in the two psukim. One of them is that about Moshe it says, Shal ne'olecha. Shva under the nun, kamatz under the ayin, segel under the segel under the lamed, ne'olecha. The word in Yoshua is na'alcha. Pasach under the nun, pasach under the ayin, shva under the lamed. So ne'olecha or na'alcha, the difference is, ne'olecha is plural, your shoes, plural. Na'alcha is your shoe, singular. So what is the significance of that? Why is the why are they uh, why is one plural and one singular? This is one of my favorite things here. The Balitosis, the, the French and German scholars of the Tosafa school, they were they they were very, very interested in Pshat and Pshutoshal Mikra, in the simple reading of the text. They weren't, you know, ideological, they weren't philosophers, they, they, they tended to follow the, the approach of Chazal, the approach of the Midrash and our tradition. They also had a very, very keen interest in the simple, almost mundane details of the text. And they say the most interesting and charming thing sometimes in explaining the, the, simple, the simple, logical reading of the text. So why does it say Na'alecha and Na'alcha? Well, why plural in Moshe and singular in Yeshua? So they say a variety of pshatim. One, one, is just more, one is just more interesting and more charming than the next. So they say that... So, so, so one suggestion is that the Moshe was already totally had both feet on the sacred ground. Yoshua already had, had taken one step forward, so one foot was on sacred ground, and one foot was still behind. On the, I don't know where, the, where exactly the dividing line was. He only had one foot in the, in the sacred areas. Take off that shoe, the shoe that's in... Take off the shoe that's in the... Take off the shoe that, 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 that's in the sacred area. Brings another shot. The Malach, this Malach appeared to Yeshua at night. It says that, uh, according to the Midrashim at least, it, it, it appeared to Yeshua at night. This was a night. Circum don't say that, but we'll get to that later, about this being nighttime. Yeshua had already begun to get ready to go to bed. He had taken off one of his shoes. He had one shoe on and one shoe off. And the Malach appeared to him and said, take off your other shoe. Yeah, he only had one shoe on. So he said, take off your other shoe, because uh, th- this is based on a Midrash that, 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 that this happened at night, as we'll discuss, uh, as we'll discuss uh, later. The, there's another approach some of the Balitosas say. They say that a couple of variations of the following idea. They say there was a difference in the social position of Moshe at the time of the episode of the burning bush and Yoshua at the time of this episode. Moshe eventually became the leader of Klal Yisrael, a king-like figure, but he was not yet. At this point, he was a shepherd. He was, uh, he was a simple shepherd uh, who was out in the midbar chasing around sheep. Yeshua was a prince. Yeshua was a leader. Was a, so he says Moshe, as a shepherd wandering around in the desert, he wore coarse, heavy shoes to, you know, to trek through the swamps. 
Yeshua was wearing these, you know, narrow Italian loafers. It doesn't say Italian, but he was wearing these prince-like shoes. Moshe's shoes were big and clunky, like shepherd's shoes. So he's, Nalecha, plural, they're big, they're, 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 they're blocky, they're, so he calls them shoes. Plural meaning a multiplicity or a large. Yeshua was wearing these narrow prince-like shoes. So he, was, so he calls them Nalcha. Or another approach, they say, Yoshua was, Moshe was wearing some kind of overshoes, like boots. Moshe had to trek through the swamps and stuff, so he needed, you know, serious foot coverings. Besides his shoes, he was wearing uh, galoshes, you know, over, overshoes of some sort. But take off both your shoes, both pairs of your shoes. Yoshua well, you know, wasn't doing that. Yoshua was wearing one pair of shoes, so the... Yoshua was wearing one pair of shoes, so he was... He was... Uh, he, it, it only says, now. Furthermore, the Rishonim pick up another difference in the, in the Tupsukim, the Pasuk of Moshe and the Pasuk of Yeshua, is that with regard to Yeshua, with regard to Yeshua, the very last words in the Perak, the last words in Pasuk Tezvav, the last words in the last Pasuk are, after the Malach said, take off your shoes, because the, the, the place that you're standing is Kodeshu, it says, Vayas Yeshua came. Yeshua did so. When it comes to Moshe, it does not say Moshe did so. Moshe was told to do it, but it does not say that does not say that Moshe did so. So why is that? Did Moshe do it? I mean, why wouldn't he do it? If the Malach said do it, so, so so why didn't he do it? So again, some of the Rishonim say that the difference isn't where they were. Moshe was approaching the bush, but had not yet stepped. According to this approach, Moshe had not yet stepped onto the sacred ground. He was still outside the the radius of the sacred ground. So the Moshe's instruction was that the Pasuk says, Al-Tikrav Halom, do not approach any closer. Shalom al take off your shoes. Meaning, you have a choice. Either keep your distance and stay, stay off the holy ground, or if you wish to approach closer, then take off your shoes. So Moshe chose not to approach any closer. Uh, the Moshe decided not to approach. We saw Moshe hit his face. Moshe was... Uh, Moshe was nervous. Moshe didn't want to get too close to Hashem. So Moshe did not go any closer. He didn't have to take off his shoes. The, 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 the instruction was, if you choose to come any closer, take off your shoes. He didn't. So he didn't take off his shoes. Yeshua already stood on the holy ground. We mentioned one shot that one, shoe was, one foot was on the holy ground before. Some say both his feet, or his, maybe one or both his feet were on the holy ground. Yeshua had no choice. Right where you are, take off your shoes. You're already on the holy ground. Yeshua had to take off his shoes. That's why it says, that's why it says, the Vayas Cain, that he that Yeshua actually did so, he took off his shoes, and as instructed to by the as instructed to by the by the Sartzvasha. So, what happened here? So, beyond the issue of the shoes, so it says that Yeshua saw this man, this this divine divine figure, this, this messenger of the divine emissary of the divine. He was holding a sword. And Yeshua asked him, "Who are you?" And the Malach said, "No, I'm not. I'm Sartz Hashem Atavasi. I am a, a Lord of the Host of Hashem, and I have come now." Yeshua bowed down, and the Malach told him, uh, "It's holy ground." What was the conversation? Why did this Malach come? What did what did he want? What, what was the mess? What was the message for Yeshua? So, first of all, going back to the beginning of the pasuk we started with today. Yeshua was in Yericho. So we mentioned Yeshua was not in Yericho. Yericho was sealed, uh, was, was, was hermetically sealed. Nobody was going in or out. So what, was, what does it mean Yeshua was in Yericho? This question is raised by the Gemara. There's a, there's a Gemara in Nadarim. The Sechus Nadarim is about Nadarim, about vows. 
But Masechus Nadarim is also a very large part of the Masechda deals with what we would call contractual interpretation, the how to interpret contracts. Why? Because a nether is where a person makes a vow and he says, I will abstain from X, or I will, I will do Y on condition Z. So much of Masechus Nadarim, pages and pages and pages and pages, is about how to interpret different phrases. What if a person says, a person says, my, my nether is from black-haired people. He means young people as opposed to gray beards. What, what's a black-haired person? Does it mean literally black-haired? Does it mean an age? Does it mean, if a person says, my nether is from, I will not have benefit from mulan, people who have bris What's the halacha of a Jew who doesn't have a bris What's the halacha of a non-Jew who has a bris So tons and tons of nadarim, much of Masechus nadarim is about how to interpret language, which is, which is relevant, of course. We don't take so many in Durham today, but it's relevant for contractual interpretation in general. What, how do we interpret words? How do we interpret phrases and language? Language that people use, which is not always mathematically, scientifically precise. How do we interpret uh, words that are used by human beings? What do the words mean? So the Gemara says, at one point, the, the Mishnah in Durham says, if somebody takes a vow that he will not have any benefit from anyone or anything in a certain city, from the city, he says. So the Gemara says, He's allowed to enter, he can't enter the city proper. He's allowed to enter the Tchum of the city. The Tchum is the 2,000 Amas, Tchum Shabbos, that, that you're not allowed to travel outside a city past an area of 2,000 Amas. So the Tchum of the city is not the city. So you're allowed to enter within 2,000 Amas of the city. However, you're not allowed to enter an area called Ibur Ha'er, which is a narrower radius around the city. That the, that the Ibur of the air is, I believe, 70 Amas. It says that you're, that you're allowed to enter within 2,000 Amas, but you're not allowed to enter that you're, uh, that, that, you, that, that you're not allowed to enter within 70 Amas. Where, where does that come from? How do we know that the how do we know that the, that the Eber of an heir is 70 amas, a little, a little bit more than 70, 70 in a fraction? It's, the, it, it, it's, actually, it's actually the square root of 5,000 is the actual number. The, the, the halacha is that the, the courtyard of the Mishkan, the Mishkan was, uh, was a building with those pillars and, and, and hangings over it. The Mishkan was, was in a, we're going to read in the next few pashias, and Truma and, and, and then the Akal Pekude. The Mishkan, the building was inside a chatzer, an area, a, a courtyard surrounded by pillars and, and curtains. The, the dimensions in the chatzer Mishkan were 50 by 100, 50 by 100 cubits, 50 by 100 amas. And that's a, that's a total of 5,000 square amas. And the, this share of 70 plus is the square root of 5,000. You can work it out, but it's, it's the square root of, uh, of 5,000. Right. And then plus a little bit more. Right. 70 times 70, Simcha says, is 4,900 amas. And 71 times 71 is already more than 5,000 amas. So it's about 70 and two-thirds or so. That, 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 that's a number. How, we're not going to get into how Chazal derived this number. But that, that's, a, that, that's a number that's significant in certain areas of halacha. The number is 70, 70 plus, about 70 and two-thirds. It's an irrational number. It's a square root to 5,000. But it's uh, about 70 and two-thirds. So, so that there's a radius around the city of 70 and two-thirds outside the edge of the city. That's called Ibr Shalir. That's called like an extension, a penumbra of the city. And that's the area you're not allowed to enter, you're not allowed to enter when you say that I will not have any hana, any benefit from the city. How do we know Ibr Shalir is considered part of the city? Rabbi Yochanan said, because it says, Yoshua was in Yericho. 
My Biyericho. What do you mean he was in Yericho? Elam Biyericho Mamish. Do we mean he was literally in Yericho? But the next Pasuk says, the beginning of the next Pasuk says, Yericho Sugaris was Sugaris. It was hermetically sealed. Nobody was going in there. Yeshua wasn't entering Yericho. Elosh Mami Nabi Vura. We see that the area outside the city nearby is called is called, uh, is, is considered in, in, in language, in human language, is considered the city, even though it's not technically inside the city. It's an extension of the city. Maybe it means inside the tomb of the city, and the verse says, no, inside the tomb of the city we prove is not considered part of the city. So Yeshua was very close to Yericho, he was just outside the walls, but he was not actually inside Yericho. That is how the, that is how the Gemara understands. The, the previous story that we've been dealing with for the last couple of months or so was the story of the, the Mila at Gilgal, the, the mass circumcision at Gilgal, and the story of the Mun. That was not actually in Yericho, that was actually in the that was actually in, in Gilgal. So the Red Doc explains that after the story, after they, the, the, after they did the Mila, after the Mun seized and they began eating the, the grain, after that they, they traveled from Gilgal and they and they they, 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 they marched to Yericho, they, 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 they traveled to Yericho and they, they prepared to capture Yericho, and that was the story of this Malach appearing on the, the, the edge, the outskirts of Yericho, right outside Yericho. That is how Chazal understood, the, the, that's how Chazal understood the story of Yeshua being in Yericho, not literally in the city, but right outside, which is considered, in the rules of language, that's, you, can, you, can, you can correctly say that's called in Yericho. We'll discuss another approach of the Ralbag, a, a, a unique and different approach of the Ralbag. Next time, I think we, we learn, but uh, this is Chazal's approach, that, that, and this is the Radak seems to accept it, that the Yericho means that right outside Yericho. So this heavenly apparition appeared, appeared to the, appeared to the, to Yeshua. <laughs> Yeshua asked him, "Are you with us or against us?" <laughs> he said, Atabasi, now I have come. What was the answer? Why has he come? What was his point? Rashi brings one midrash. Atabasi Secha. I'm here to aid you, meaning I'm not a human, I'm not a human ally, but I'm here to provide you aid. You're going to need aid because nobody can, uh, with, with ordinary human capability, nobody could capture Yericho. It has this impregnable wall. So it, it's really unassailable, but I'm a, I'm a heavenly uh, messenger help, I've sent to provide you sent to provide you with aid. The language Atabasi, now I have come, so Rashi brings a Midrash that this is actually the second time I'm coming, that in Parshish Kisisa, Hashem said, after the, after the Chayt of the Egel and the reconciliation, Hashem said, I will send a Malach to, uh, I will not travel with you anymore, but I'll send a Malach to lead you. Moshe said, no, Ein Panach HaHolchim, and I don't want to go. We're not going unless you yourself come to us. We don't want to deal with the Malach. So Yeshua, so the, the, Hashem was, the Malach was saying, this is a different situation now. You are not, uh, that, 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 that this, is, this is going to be, this is going to be a Malach. This is not going to be, this is, uh, the Malach was saying, don't reject me. That the, the, Moshe said no, but now, now it's time for me to come. So it's, so the, so the, the Malach was saying that I came before and I, and I was rejected, but now I'm coming and now it's time for me to come, so please accept the fact that I'm going to be that, 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 I'm, that, I'm, that I'm going to be the I'm going to be the one providing Hashem's assistance to you. And Yeshua bowed down. He accepted the Malach that this Malach would now be that this Malach would now be uh, that, 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 that this Malach would now be helping helping Yeshua, helping the Jewish people conquer Yericho. They, they, I, I saw that this Navi brings the Barbanel. I didn't have a chance to look it up yet, but the, the Barbanel says that 
Yoshua said, Are you with us or, or are, you, are you our enemy? And the Malach answered, No, not as you think, but I'm a Malach. So the, the, the simple reading is, No, I'm not a human ally, I'm not a human combatant as you think, I'm a Malach. But Arbanel says that he's saying that you think you're in charge, you think that you're the you're Yoshua, you're, you're, the, you're the commander of this army. Nope. I am, uh, I am actually the commander of the army. I'm Hashem's messenger. I am commanding this army. You are now my subordinate. You are, uh, you, that uh, I am the Sar Tzva Hashem. The simple, simple reading, Sar Tzva Hashem, is, you know, we refer to Hashem Tzvakos. The Malach is the Lord of hosts. It means some kind of heavenly, uh, heavenly host. But the Barbara understands, no, Sar Tzva Hashem means I am a heavenly general. I am being sent to, uh, to I'm, I'm being installed here as the commander of this army. That the, and you are now my subordinate because I'm I, I outrank you essentially I'm, I'm I am now your superior, and Yeshua bowed down. He accepted. He said, "Okay, understood. I'm now you're the boss now, and I am I'm going to be accepting orders from you." And that that was this conversation. The there is a famous explanation of this story, though. These are various explanations offered by the Balei Pshat. There is a famous explanation offered by Chazal in the Gemara. The Gemara says that when the Malach appeared to Yeshua, he was reprimanding Yeshua for a shortfalling, a religious shortfalling on the part of Yeshua and the people. The Gemara in Megillah says that, so first the Gemara says that it says that the, when, when Yeshua saw this person, he, he hailed this person, that the Malach it was, and he bowed down to him. The Gemara says, Hechi Yavid Hachi, how are you allowed to do this? The, the Gemara brings, Amr Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, Aster la'adam shitin shalom l'chavera belayla. You should keep your distance from uh, shadowy figures at night. You shouldn't give them shalom. You shouldn't greet them. Chashinan shema shedu. Might not be human. It might actually be a demon. And then you can get in trouble, I guess, by greeting it. So the Gemara says, Shani hasam da'amr le'ek yani sa'ar Apparently the saying, challenging and saying, identify yourself is fine. But later, when Yeshua bowed down and showed him respect, how could he do that? Maybe he was a shade. So the Mara says, no. Once the Malach identified himself and said, I am a Sar Tzva Hashem, I'm, an, uh, I'm, I'm a Malach, Yeshua could greet him. So the Gemara Why do you trust it? Yeah, anyone could say he's a Malach. Maybe it's really a demon who's making trouble. So the Gemara says, We know the, that the, even the demons who are tricky and, uh, and, and lie and, uh, and are... Uh, can be malevolent forces, they will not take the, the Lord's name in vain. If they're lying, they're, they're not going to say Hashem's name. If he, once he said, Hashem, he wouldn't do that. This is, a, this is a very interesting prescription that if you see mysterious shadowy figures at night, you have to suspect that they're demons. Tosa says that, Tosa says that uh, in several places in Shaz, Tosa it's only when you see them in wild, isolated areas outside the city. The, the shadings don't infest uh, urban areas in the city. You don't have to worry about it. And here it was in, in the Sadeh. It wasn't in the middle of a Jewish camp. It was, it was in an isolated area. Where, where people are around, demon, demons, demons are, not, uh, are not infesting the, the area. Now, again, we'll, we'll have to get, I think, ne- next time we learn, we'll get to Chazal Pshan and the rest of the story, what, what was the purpose of this Malach, and so on. But just to talk about this demon business a little bit, there, there's one other famous Gemara that talks about demons like this. The Gemara says, and in, 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 two other Gemaras, actually, that talk about demons in, 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 in a halachic context. It says, if... <coughs> in Hilchus Gittin, in Mesechus Gittin, it says, if you, see a per- if you see a figure and he says... 
my name is so-and-so, I'm in trouble here, I'm stuck in this pit. You try to get him out, obviously, but if you can't, and he says, uh, I hereby authorize you to write a get for my wife, that she may never see me again, I may never get out of here, you know, and I, I want to make sure her status is cleared up, so just uh, I authorize you to write a bill of divorce and give it to my wife, you can do it. You can accept his, his charge and do it. Maybe he's a demon. Maybe he's one of these demonic impersonators who's trying to make trouble. You can't see his face clearly. You can't see him. Uh, you don't know exactly who it is. You have to trust him. Maybe he's a demonic impersonator. So the Gemara goes through a whole thing that you see uh, that the demon has a shadow. The Gemara says maybe they have shadows also. Maybe demons cast shadows. The Gemara says you see a secondary shadow. It's not clear exactly what that means. A shadow of a shadow, a secondary shadow. Maybe they have that too. So the Gemara says, well, no, we have a tradition that they don't have the same kind of shadow that humans have. This is, of course, a, a common idea in, uh, in mythology that supernatural, uh, inhuman entities, undead entities, don't cast the same kind of shadows that humans do in Dracula. What, one, of this, one of the hints that, uh, that, that, that Dracula is not human is that he's shaving in the mirror and he doesn't see, he doesn't see the, the reflection of the, of the vampire because dra- vampires apparently don't, don't cast reflections the same way humans do. So Chazal have this idea also that demons, they, 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 they don't cast the same kind of shadows that humans do. That's how you can identify whether he's demon or human. Similar Gemara in Yuvamas, in the Sugus of Aguna, it says if somebody says, you know, I'm dying, I'm, 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 I've been mortally wounded, and my wife you know, can remarry, I'm about to die, and you don't actually get a chance to see him close up, you just hear his voice coming out from the, from the darkness somewhere, you can, you, you can accept that, and you can tell his wife, you know, he's dead, your husband is dying, he's dead, you're allowed to remarry. So the Gemara says, well, maybe he's uh, maybe it's a demonic impersonator making trouble. Again, you see the shadow, you see the secondary shadow, and uh, that's how you know it's not a demon. What's in the darkness? How do you see a shadow? Right, so that Gemara, that's a good question. I, right, I said it was dark, maybe it was... Um, it's a good question. I, I, don't, I, I don't remember. I, I know the Gemara didn't talk about shadows. I thought the Gemara and Yivamas did also. But, yeah, it's a good question. I don't, I don't remember exactly. Maybe moonlight, right. But both these Gemaras seem to... And these are halakha Gemaras. The laws of Gittin, the laws of marriage and remarriage, Aguna. Both these Gemaras say that you have to be choshesh for demonic impersonation. As the... Okay, Tosa says only in wilderness areas and isolated areas, not, not in civilized areas. But the Rambam, Maimonides... When he brings these halachas, he omits any mention of demonic impersonation, he omits any mentions of shadows, completely leaves it all out and just says that, you know, and, and completely ignores any, any talk of demons. The Rambam didn't believe in demons, that, that we know. From the, the, Ram, the Rambam was a rationalist. The Rambam, tended to re, the Rambam believed in, in God, believed in miracles, believed in you know, Kriyas Yamsev and Matan Torah and so on. But he did not believe in, in sorcery and demons and things like this. So the Rambam doesn't mention demons. Now, many of the, many of the early commentaries on the Rambam, medieval, medieval authorities and later commentaries on the Rambam, struggle with this. They say, the Gemara says, there's a concern for demons, and the Rambam's not going to just reject the Gemara, so what did he do with the Gemara? So they have all kinds of explanations for why the Rambam, how the Rambam understood that this was an earlier stage in the, in the development of the Gemara's thought on the topic. The Gemara later says that because of the desperate situation, we, we relax the rules a little bit. We allow you to just make assumptions. It's not a demon. The Gemara says maybe it's a human impersonator. Maybe it's a, a rival, a, a, a rival of this woman who's out to make trouble and trick her into remarrying when her husband is still alive. 
So at that point, the Gemara says, you're right. It's, uh, it, it, we, we're just in extremists. We're just in a desperate situation, so we, we can't afford to uh, cross every T and dot every I. We just have to assume that it's, uh, we, we, we just have to hope and assume that, 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 that it's above board. So some say the Ram understood that at that point, you don't have to worry about demons either. You don't need the shadows. But the, the, the early authorities tended to assume the Rambam did accept demons, uh, despite being a philosopher, because the Gemara believes in them, and therefore just said that, okay, that for some reason here, the, the conclusion of the Gemara is we don't worry about the demons. But some later authorities, the Marsham and Rav Yosef Shal Nathanson, Rav Shalom HaKohen, Mordechai Shvadron, the Marsham, and Rav Yosef Shal Nathanson, the Shalom Eishif, both say that the, the MS is, the, the truth is, the Ram just didn't believe in demons. So we had these Gemaras that, that believed in demons. The Rambam somehow finessed them away. The Rambam just has a, a, a programmatic idea that any Gemara that talks about demons, the Rambam just dropped from the Halacha because the Rambam simply didn't believe in these things. And therefore, any Halacha that involved demons, the Rambam just managed to avoid. They themselves, Rav Nathanson and Rav Shvadron, were, were, were much more traditional. They said, we, of course, do accept these things. Shadron certainly did. Rav Nathanson also, I think, is... I mean, Rav Nathanson, I think, is not taking a clear position. But many say, that's the Rambam's view, but we, we, we accept Chazal's view of the world, so we're not going to reject demons. But the Rambam did reject demons, and therefore the Rambam's omission of demons in these halachas does seem to reflect the fact that he didn't believe in demons, and therefore he, therefore he omitted the, these concerns. But the Gemara seemed to believe in them, and the... And that's why in this Gemara, the Gemara asks, how could Yeshua prostrate himself and show obeisance to this heavenly visitor? Maybe he was a demonic impersonator. And the Gemara says, Yeshua relied on the fact that this Malach said, Hashem. once he invoked Hashem's name, a demon wouldn't do that. Even the demons, with all their demonic and malicious tricks, would not mention Hashem's name, and therefore he knew that he was not a demon.